Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to Transalta Corporation's second quarter 2020 results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during this session, you will need to press star and then one on your telephone. Please be advised today's conference is being recorded, and if you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to Chiara Valentini. Thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Transalta's second quarter 2020 conference call. With me today are Don Farrell, President and Chief Executive Officer, Todd Stack, Chief Financial Officer, John Cousinoris, Chief Operating Officer, and Carrie O'Reilly-Wilkes, Chief Legal, Regulatory, and External Affairs Officer. Today's call is webcast, and I invite those listening on the phones to view the supporting slides that are posted on the website. A replay of the call will be available later today, and the transcript will be posted to our website shortly thereafter. All the information provided during the conference call is subject to the forward-looking statement qualifications set out here on slide two, further detailed in our MD&A, and incorporated in full for the purposes of today's call. All amounts referenced during the call are in Canadian currency unless otherwise stated. The non-IFRS terminology used, including comparable EBITDA, funds from operations, and free cash flow are also reconciled in the MD&A for your reference. On today's call, Don and Todd will provide an overview of the quarter's results, along with expectations for the balance of year. After these prepared remarks, we will open the call for questions. And with that, let me turn the call over to Don. Thanks, Kira, and welcome everyone to the call today. We are presenting our results today from our offices here in Calgary. So as of last Monday, all our employees are now either back in their offices here or at the plants across our locations in Canada, United States, and Australia. I cannot tell you how great it is to be here today presenting a strong second quarter along with all our people safely back at our sites and doing what they do best which is working to deliver low-cost, reliable, and clean power to our customers and communities. Our Transalta employees are all leaders here at work and in their communities and families, as they have quickly learned how to practice COVID safety protocols, which are keeping us safe and allowing us to see each other in person, of course, while maintaining a two-meter distance. We're very excited to report results for the quarter that are solid. Our quarter is only slightly below what we expected to be able to do in a pre-COVID world. And this is actually exceptional when one steps back to reflect on how much different the world is under the cloud of the pandemic. It is a true testament to the diversity and stability of our portfolio and the resilience and tenacity of the employees who work at this company. When we left the offices in early March, we were facing into a significant drop in power demand in almost every jurisdiction we either operated in or traded in. We immediately set up systems to measure our liquidity because we needed to be able to assess the ability of our customers to pay their bills. 
We also saw reduced volatility in electricity pricing in every jurisdiction, which could have impacted the ability of our training business to deliver their results. And of course, we were worried about the safety of our employees, many of whom had to continue to go to the plants, and many had to stay in their homes where they did their work in makeshift offices while taking care of their families. I'm very pleased today to tell you that many of our concerns simply did not take hold. We are reporting a second quarter that is strong, with excellent safety and operational results, and stronger than expected revenue in our Alberta business due to some great hedging by our asset optimizers. We had outstanding performance in our trading business, which delivered one of the strongest Q2s in recent history. Our trading operations ran smoothly, albeit from their homes, and our plants achieved strong availability, all while dealing with the uncertainty of a pandemic and the challenges of having kids out of school. As we look at the cash that we generated in the first half of the year and what's to come as we look ahead, we continue to close in on our goal of reducing senior recourse debt to $1.2 billion by November. You all know that we've been after this objective for several years now and cannot wait until our fourth quarter call to tell you that it's finally been done and dusted. We're also confident that we can complete our investments under our strategy without the need for additional funding. So our highlights of the second quarter include delivering $217 million of EBITDA and $91 million of free cash flow, or $0.33 cents per share, results that were ahead of 2019 by 94% on a per-share basis. We achieved strong availability and safety performance. The entire fleet had an average availability of 90.7% for the quarter, up from 83.8% last year. And year-to-date, we've achieved a safety result of 1.4 on our total injury frequency rate, which is great performance. We delivered strong operational performance while all our plant staff showed up every day and worked together under COVID-19 protocols that were approved by our local health authorities in each region. We are deeply grateful to the men and women in our health authorities across our sites who worked side-by-side with us to develop safety protocols that kept our workforce in the field and head office safe. We needed to provide electricity for the economy and our customers, and they built our confidence around what people can do together if they're willing to follow a few very simple rules. They also helped us continue with all our construction projects, and we are moving ahead on every project with very few delays. Now, unfortunately, COVID had a negative impact on the stock price of almost every Alberta company, as it had such a tremendous impact on oil demand, oil pricing, and oil production here in Alberta. As such, we used that as an opportunity to use our NCIB to return an additional $12 million of capital to our shareholders with our share buyback program. And year-to-date, we've returned uh, uh, approximately $21 million to shareholders at an average uh, price of $7.51 per share. Our finance team did an outstanding job of managing cash, and our long-term contracts with our customers were excellent. Any worries that we had about the depth of this crisis were set aside through the quarter as all our customers continued to pay their bills. We ended the quarter with continued strong liquidity at $1.6 billion, which includes approximately $250 million of cash. And we're poised to repay our 2020 bond maturity later this year without further funding requirements from the market. So just a few words on our strategic priorities. 
We continue to track on all our priorities with very little delay or very little change in timing. Our strategy continues to focus on delivering our pipeline of investments regarding our coal to gas here in Alberta, wind and our wind and our cogeneration projects. On our coal to gas strategy, we are set now to kick off the Sundance 6 conversion in September of this year, and both people's conversions are uh, on time and getting ready to go in the 2021 period. We also continue to advance our gas supply strategy here in Alberta, and based on that progress, we, do, we now do not see a need to complete a dual fuel conversion on our K3 unit, and that unit will be fully converted to gas only in Q Q3 of next year. This slightly reduces our capital requirement for that project. We're progressing the repowering of Sundance Unit 5 and have advanced the competition for the EPC contract and expect to receive bid proposals here in the fall. We gave notice to retire our currently mothballed Sundance Unit 3 coal-fired unit out of the market by July 31, 2020, today. This decision largely, was largely based on the condition and age of the unit and our flexibility and options around repowering our units and our existing generation portfolio. This is another milestone in our transition plan to get to 100% clean energy by 2025 and closing the chapter on our coal-fired generation. On the cogeneration front, during the quarter, we finalized the acquisition of our first cogeneration facility in the United States. We welcomed the ADA facility located in Michigan, along with the new customers, Consumers Energy and Amway. This marks our first toehold in the U.S. in this segment as we progress on our on-site generation goals. On our KBOB project with SEMCAMS, we are on track to start construction in early fall. Factory tests of the gas turbines have been completed, and we have major equipment deliveries set for later this year. On the, on the renewables front, we have construction underway on both wind rise and wind charger. We expect to reach COD on wind charger in a few weeks. Bulk of the equipment is now on site and installed, and we're progressing with the factory testing on the transformers. On wind rise, site construction commenced as planned in April and is tracking well, with turbine deliveries expected later this year. Our diligence and compliance to COVID-19 protocols remain solid to date, which enables that project to continue. Skookumchuk now has 18 turbines up, with eight mechanical completion certificates issued. The first circuit of six turbines have been energized, and the rest are expected to commission in the next quarter. And we'll make our decision on our option to buy 49% of the project sometime during the quarter. As we look towards the balance of year, we continue to have confidence in our 2020 free cash flow guidance. Todd will talk you through our views of the second half recovery in power demand here in Alberta as everyone returns to their offices and schools. And if all goes expected, we also expect to hit the lower end of our EBITDA guidance. I do have one last comment before I turn it over to Todd. We did see particularly weak Alberta spot market prices in June due to short-term disruptions in supply and demand. Lots of supply due to both high winds and lots of hydro coming in through the Pacific Northwest that flowed of course into Alberta, of course, through our tie line. Demand fell by almost 1,000 megawatts in March. It has recovered somewhat since then, but June was a month with lots of supply and an unheard of level of demand destruction. Spot prices in the Alberta market in June are not an indicator of the future, which we will talk you through today. 
What you'll see from Todd today is that our diversified fleet, our level of contractedness, and our approach to asset optimization mostly offset these shorter-term headwinds in the Alberta market. Transalta's diversified EBITDA, our free cash flow, our liquidity, and the fact that we have our strategy fully funded allows us to be one of the few companies globally that can deliver on our investment plans with very minor changes in timing and on the path that we set prior to the full impacts of this pandemic. Pretty remarkable, in my view. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Todd for more help on the financials, and then we'll, we'll all come back uh, with questions for the team. Thank you, Don, and welcome to everyone on the call. I'll start by reviewing the financial highlights on slide six. During our Q1 call, we indicated electricity demand was expected to remain low and that merchant power prices would be weak in Q2, which they were. While these conditions impacted, or these conditions impacted our merchant sales, our fleet-wide operational and financial results for the second quarter of 2020 continued to be strong and were indicative of the resilience of our operations, our hedging and marketing capability, and our portfolio diversification. During the quarter, we generated $217 million of EBITDA, which was in line with the same period in 2019, despite the challenge of lower electricity demand. As I will highlight later on, merchant sales from our, from our Alberta coal segment represents a relatively small contribution to the company's overall EBITDA. Our EBITDA in the quarter was generated by strong and predictable contributions from our gas and renewable segments, combined with, combined with strong cost controls and performance from our energy marketing team. Free cash flow also improved by $42 million year over year to $91 million in Q2 versus $49 million last year. On a per share basis, we delivered free cash flow of $0.33 cents per share in the quarter and exceeded 2019 results by 94%, which was in line with our expectations. Stronger free cash flow was largely attributable to reduced capital spend on major maintenance, with two outages in Q2 2019 versus no major outages in 2020. Year-to-date, we've generated $200 million of free cash flow, or $0.72 cents per share, a 41% increase over 2019's six-month performance. This is an exceptional result for the company and one of the strongest first halves in the last decade. Turning to the Alberta power market, spot market Alberta prices, uh, power prices in the quarter averaged $30 per megawatt hour and were considerably lower than the second quarter of 2019, which averaged $57 per megawatt hour. However, our merchant units uh, at Alberta Thermal were able to continue to realize revenues in the mid-50s due to our financial hedging and dispatch optimization. As Don said earlier, the province had significant supply available from both within the province as well as from imports. In the province, supply was strong due to fewer planned outages and strong resource supply from the wind and hydro segments. During the quarter, we also saw significant low-cost imports into Alberta from excess hydro and wind production uh, from the Pacific Northwest. Electricity demand was impacted throughout Q2 by COVID-19 and the continuing impact of lower oil prices on demand. We estimate load reductions peaked at about 1,100 megawatts, but is now trending in the 500 to 600 megawatt range versus 2019. As we're moving through the summer, we're seeing demand recover week by week as the economy starts to reopen. Over the past several weeks, we've seen many offices and businesses reopen and people return to restaurants and other attractions. We expect this to continue through the fall as kids go back to school and some of the shut-in oil production is brought back into the market. 
Our Alberta coal base load generation is now completely hedged for Q3, and we are partially hedged for Q4, which is the right position as we see prices recovering somewhat to reflect the increases in demand from increased economic activity. For the Alberta market, when we look ahead to 2021, we could hedge volumes if we wanted into the $51 per megawatt hour range. That market is thinly traded and will begin to adjust as the market gets a sense of how demand is recovering over the second half of this year. We aren't a seller at these prices for the following reasons. First, there are a significant number of plant outages scheduled in 2021 as many of the coal units have planned outages to be converted to gas or dual fuel. These outages will naturally tighten supply demand balances in the province. Second, we expect the provincial carbon tax to increase to $40 per ton to remain in line with the federal program. This raises the cost of production and has to be recovered through higher power prices. Third, the Alberta power purchase arrangements uh, will transition next year. Six generating units representing roughly 2,400 megawatts of mid-merit thermal capacity are currently dispatched by the balancing pool and contracted under the existing PPAs. Beginning in January, the owners of the PPA assets will now be in complete alignment with the risks of owning, operating, and investing in the assets. In order to recover capacity costs, we anticipate plant owners will structure their energy offers accordingly to reflect the recovery for return of and on capital, as there is no mechanism outside of price of energy to do so. We were pleased to see the clarification provided by the MSA enforcement statement in late June on economic withholding. The MSA provided that in an energy-only electricity market, the pool price must sometimes exceed short-run marginal cost if the cost of generation capacity is to be recovered from the market. This will be the first time in the Alberta market that this new alignment in ownership and clarity and rules will play out in terms of price formation. And finally, as the economy reopens, we see increasing demand as schools and businesses ramp up to higher levels. Increasing demand generally correlates to increasing prices. As an aside, when you study the cost structure of the generating units in the market and where demand crosses supply, the average price often settles in the financial and spot market to an average of $60 per megawatt hour. Next year, we expect additional volatility, so taking an average price times volume will not tell the tale of how we'll do in the market. For our fleet, peaking plants and hydro will make their money as prices increase during periods of tightness due to outages, demand, and weather. We do expect the market to settle close to a historical average, but our job will be to position ourselves to increase margins in periods of volatility. We had, a strong, oper we had strong operating performance across the generation fleet and segmented generation cash flows improved year over year by 16%. This was led by expected strong performance from our U.S. coal segment and the increased contribution from the wind segment. Overall, we continue to produce strong uh, cash flows across all of our fuel segments, with our largest contribution this quarter coming from the wind and solar segment, which has contributed about 30% of, of our segment cash flows so far this year. Wind and solar EBITDA improved in the quarter, primarily due to the full period contribution of Antrim and Big Level wind facilities, which were commissioned in December, along with higher production due to excellent wind resource across all regions. The U.S. coal segment returned to normal results for the quarter and were substantially higher than the second quarter of 2019. We benefited from lower price power purchases and strengthening of the U.S. dollar relative to the Canadian dollar. For the remainder of the year, we continue ex to expect strong results for the segment as the majority of our production is hedged.
cash flow from the Alberta Thermal Fleet was in line with 2019 and represents about 11% of our total segment cash flow. Although EBITDA declined by $36 million, this was offset by lower maintenance capital spend resulting in strong segment cash flow. EBITDA in the segment was also impacted by a $7 million increase to our provision in fuel and purchase power relating to the Alberta ISO line loss dispute for transmission losses for the years 2006 to 2016. Many of you may not recall this proceeding, so let me take a minute to go through it. This regulatory process has been ongoing for over a decade and relates to how the ISO used to calculate transmission loss fees for all generators in the province. During Q2, the ISO was able to provide the results for the recalculation of three of the 11 years under dispute, which allowed us to better estimate the potential impact. In total, we've recognized a $20 million provision relating to this dispute. The estimated amounts continue to be uncertain and the ISO's recalculated loss factors remain subject to further review and change. Revenue from the Alberta Thermal Fleet uh, in the quarter averaged approximately uh, $65 per megawatt hour and was fairly consistent with last year. Where we were able to maintain our per megawatt hour revenues through capacity payments on our PPA units as well as from significant hedging and dispatch optimization in the quarter. Strong per megawatt hour revenues were offset by increased fuel costs of $40 per megawatt hour compared with $33 last year. A portion of this increase, about $3, is due to the recognition of the transmission line loss provision. The residual increase is related to higher year-over-year gas prices and our fixed coal costs now being spread over lower volumes as a result of lower production in the mine in the quarter. We had strong production from our hydro segment in Q2 due to strong seasonal runoff, but with an oversupplied power market, there was limited opportunity to capture any price premiums. Realized prices in the quarter for energy and ancillary ancillary services were off compared to our historical averages due to lack of price volatility. Our energy marketing segment exceeded last year's quarterly performance by 10 million. Results were attained through short-term strategies across our various geographic regions in both the power and natural gas markets. Our corporate segment incurred a quarter-over-quarter favorable run rate impact of $5 million due to lower operating costs. After including uh, for the impact of the total return swap, our corporate segment cash flows decreased by a total of $12 million compared to 2019, an excellent result for the segment. For the quarter, our segmented cash flow of $191 million was ahead of 2019 by $47 million. And as I discussed earlier, the company generated a consolidated free cash flow of $91 million, an increase of $42 million compared to the same period last year. As Don mentioned, liquidity at TransAlta is very strong and has been for some time. We ended the quarter with $1.6 billion in liquidity, including approximately $250 million in cash. In addition to the current liquidity, we will be receiving $400 million from the second tranche of financing from the Brookfield investment in the fourth quarter of 2020. Our strong liquidity position sets us up well to repay our upcoming bond maturity and to continue funding our coal-to-gas program and advance our renewable development projects. With respect to our share buyback program, year-to-date, we've repurchased and cancelled $21 million in shares, which is tracking with our capital allocation strategy for 2020. As you can see on slide 10, over the past few years, we've been focused on reducing our corporate debt levels in preparation for a fully merchant market in Alberta. We're on track to meet this goal in November and continue to be comfortable with our current debt levels. 
On slide 11, I'll provide an update on our long-term contract and hedging levels. Year-to-date, we've realized $437 million of EBITDA, which is in line with 2019. For the full year 2020, approximately 90% of our EBITDA has been realized to date or is contracted or hedged for the balance of the year. We continue to manage the remaining EBITDA contribution from merchant production through hedging and optimization. Looking at our merchant exposure in Alberta, 75% of our thermal-based load generation is hedged at $53 a megawatt hour for the remainder of the year. For Q3, we are fully hedged in our base load generation, which provides the company uh, protection from the near-term fluctuations in power prices related to the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting weaker energy demand. As we look to the final quarter of 2020, we are opportunistically adding additional hedges and are closely monitoring the recovery in power prices to take advantage of this on our open exposure. At these current hedge levels, we estimate that a $1 change in Alberta power prices would result in an approximate $2 million change in EBITDA. Given the unprecedented impact of demand in Alberta, we currently expect EBITDA to be at the low end of our guidance range. This is primarily driven by the limited ability to sell additional merchant megawatt volumes into the market until the economy fully recovers. At the same time, we also expect sustaining and, uh, and productivity capital to be at the low end of our range as we've been able to respond with adjustments in our capital investment plans. These reductions, combined with our year-to-date results, give us confidence in achieving our full-year free cash flow at the midpoint of our outlook. Uh, Before I close off my section, I just wanted to summarize the strength of the quarter. The performance of the business and our people over the last three months demonstrates exceptional performance, a strong commitment, and significant resilience. Our business model and operating practices came through Q2 with flying colors And not only are we able to see that in the health of our employees, but also in the health of the company. As we look forward, we have confidence that our business operations and portfolio are well positioned to respond to the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Given our ability to navigate the impact of this pandemic and delivery of our cash flows, we have every confidence in our business model as we look towards the back half of 2020 and into 2021. Our strategy is on track and can, can be completed with little delay and within the financial resources we have raised to date. With that, I will pass the call back over to Kira to start the Q&A. Thank you, Todd. Chris, would you please open the call up for questions from the analysts? Certainly, ladies and gentlemen, in order to ask a question, you will need to press star and then one on your telephone. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Rob Hope with Scotiabank. Your line is open. Uh, morning, everyone. I uh, just want to follow up on your comment about uh, fitting behaviors into 2021. Just taking a look back at Q3, you know, and I guess year to date in 2020, you know, we are seeing some of the balancing pool units dispatched more than I would have expected. So, you know, do you think there will be, do you think these are currently being bid economically? And do you think there will be a, a large shift in 2021 with the new uh, new directions? Yeah, I, I, let me let me start uh, with that, and then uh, Todd and, and John can can jump in because it's something we've been looking at closely. Um, I, I really can't comment on what the motivations are of the balancing pool. They do have, when you look at the structure of the PPAs they have, um, they they remember those PPAs were set up in 2000, and so they they really do have 
quite a different uh, economic signal in them than what it looks like when you actually return the PPAs uh, back to all the owners. So what we've looked at is a couple of things. You, do, you return everything back to the owners, and effectively, you know, people do have to recover their costs, and they have to recover a, a capacity payment somehow in, in the market. Um, and 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 they they have the right to you know to recover the capital that they they've invested. Um, people have forgotten that the original PPAs did not have recovery recovery of sustaining capital in the last five years or so. Uh, and the and the theory at the time was that if the generators wanted to continue to reinvest towards the end of the PPAs, it was really on their dime to do that reinvestment to set up the units for the for the coming market. So if you, if you put that all in a big pot and stir it, what it really means is as everybody gets their PPAs back, they really you know, start to bid the proper cost structures into the market, the proper return. So of course there'll be a competition for what that return might be depending on supply and demand conditions. Uh, but the, we finally get the full fundamentals of that energy only market. So when we, we've done a lot of analysis on that, and when we look at that, that's where you start to see things like the impact of a $40 carbon price comes into, impact, comes into effect. Uh, and then you also see that kind of generally the generators um, all have pretty similar cost structures. So at the end of the day, they're all going to be equally motivated uh, to, get, to, to ensure they get their costs out of the market. Does, does that make sense, Rob? Yep, that's great. Uh, and then the follow-up question, just how are you thinking about deployment of capital? You have a, a bunch on the balance sheet. You've got Pioneer coming in soon. Um, you know, when you look at the stack of opportunities in front of you, you know, how, how do they rank? You know, could we see you do some contracted or merchant renewables in Alberta, further cogent mm -hmm. M&A development in the U.S.? How are you thinking about deploying capital? Yeah, I mean, there's some... There's some really, really interesting opportunities uh, that you know we're seeing in the in the marketplace. I mean, we're we're generally quite focused on serving. As you know, we don't retail power; we sell to retailers. Um, but we're really quite focused on the large commercial and large industrial sector. And um, you know, just through the pandemic, I think people have often wondered whether or not the ESG framework will will remain or will it get kicked aside? And, and what we're seeing is, uh, you know, investors are even more, um, more, they find it even more important to ensure that they reduce the risk of, of what the science may bring, which means that all companies are focused on how do they create uh, um, some sort of path towards lower greenhouse gas emissions. And so uh, we see opportunities here in Alberta with our large uh, oil and gas customers. Uh, we see a lot of opportunities across the United States, almost everywhere we go. Um, you know, even this, uh, you know, having Amway as a customer, it's it's pretty cool. These guys are they're growing their businesses based on what they see as the future, and of course, as a result of doing that, they want to make sure that they've got uh, power behind that business that's sustainable. <clears throat> so, lots of opportunities here in Alberta, uh, but also uh, in the U.S. All right, that's great. Thank you. Our next question is from Patrick Kenny with National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning. Uh, 
Don, maybe just to follow up on the uh, capital allocation. So you've had success in signing up the big corporate off-takers for renewable capacity. Uh, curious your thoughts on being able to leverage off your existing relationships with Microsoft and others to you know, potentially accelerate your, your clean energy transition and take advantage of the, the strong growth being experienced across the tech industry. And then I guess if, if internal capital is a constraint to take advantage of that growth, you know, how you might think about bringing in partners or other external uh, sources of capital. Yeah, so, so a couple of comments on that, Patrick. So first of all, one thing you want to look at when you look at our Alberta portfolios, we actually have, we have there's, there's not a lot of green power here in Alberta, and we've got most of it. Like we've got kind of 90% of it between our hydro and, and our wind uh, assets. And, and of course, um, you know, when we're finished with Sun 6, we have a way to back it up with clean, clean gas. So that is, is something that we really see as a big opportunity for existing customers that we've got long-term relationships uh, with here in Alberta. That's number one. Number two, when you look at the, uh, the Microsoft uh, and the tech industry, they are highly sought after. Like everybody and their dog wants a contract with, with Microsoft. So those returns tend to be bid really, really thin. Not that we don't want to compete there, but when you're thinking about capital allocation like you are, you want to go where your highest returns are. And typically what we're finding is, go back to our little Michigan project, which, you know, everybody goes, oh, why do you want to invest $27 million U.S. in a company like that, blah, 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 it's too little. And I'm looking at it going, yeah, behind that is a really big um, supplier of, of products to the market in Amway. And if we could capture them as one of our, as, if we became their preferred supplier on green electricity, that's a massive move for us. So as we look at the customer business, we, do, we are starting to really partition and say to ourselves, who actually needs us the most? Who needs our skills? Because our skills are a combination of how do you trade energy, how do you build new energy, how do you bring cre green credits and offsets, how do you understand the regulations around offsets, how do you bring that whole mix together and then provide something to your customer? And we find actually the industrials who are retooling uh, their businesses uh, to have to, to be better prospects for us because they need us more, and and most people aren't aren't focused there. Okay, that's great, Don, and and maybe just to follow up for Todd, you know, you mentioned the Alberta merchant contributions continue to represent a smaller portion of overall cash flows. Um, but I guess this looks to be putting some pressure on your deconsolidated leverage ratios. So, you know, until power prices recover, uh, there might be a delay here in, in getting down to that sub three times um, target. Just wondering, does that impact at all the, uh, the, the priorities with respect to dividend policy, share buybacks, um, or, you know, debt repayment as, as you look to refinance that 22 bond uh, coming up there? Yeah, no, I would say actually no change to any of our capital allocation plans that we talked about. I think it was last September uh, we announced on our deconsolidated basis. Um, you, you are correct, although our, our uh, I think our deconsolidated uh, cash flows are actually very strong and stronger than they were uh, prior quarter um, or, or at, uh, as of compared to 2019. 
Um, what we're really looking at is reinvestment in the coal to gas is consuming some capital right now, and so we really need to get through some of that program. And similarly, we will see higher deconsolidated free cash flows once the hydro comes off PPA at the beginning of next year. That'll be a significant contribution to that, uh, that deconsolidated cash flow. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. Our next question is from Ben Pam with BMO. Your line is open. Okay, thanks. Good morning. Um, so I have a question on the the hydro PPA that expires late this year. You, you go into next year, the production from that that facility is that is that going to be part of your your hedging program with some of your storage slash on a river, or is it going to be mostly open exposure? Uh, so I'll start, and then then John can can add. Um, I mean, you've got to think about that hydro as as several different streams of of revenue. Um, but if you're just thinking about the sort of energy component and the capacity, remember that in this spring um, there's big runoffs. We never know quite when it is. We never know if it's going to be, you know, in in May, uh, April, May, or June. It depends. I've you know in Alberta it's been 30 above at the end of April, and sometimes it's a cool spring, and the runoff doesn't come until June. But net net that energy that comes, it's more run of the river, is more energy. And it is, some of it is hedgeable in our program. Yeah. Um, and then there's the storage component of it, which is really uh, what we use for both ancillary services and then selling into the market when it, like last week when the market was really high. Our hydro loves those days, right? So um, it's the, the, the asset optimizers do a lot of risk probability assessments and then they decide how much they're going to hedge. Maybe John, do you want to add yeah, to no, that? I mean, I think, um, I think Ben Don answered it well. There is, a, there is a component, I think of it as a strip effectively of, yeah. the, uh, of the anticipated uh, generation that we have through the year that we do view as being baseload-like, if I can use that sort of expression, it would factor into uh, uh, the work that the optimization team does from a, uh, from a hedging perspective for sure. Okay, great. And, and anything Notable with, with uh, some of the Brazil uh, pump storage uh, project that uh, that gained a lot of legs uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, there's been some activity around CC Energy uh, partnering in Alberta and some stuff going on on Ontario. Would would love an update there if, if there's anything. You must be in the walls at Transalta, are you, Ben? Um, so everybody knows that Brazos, the CEO's favorite project, and she's going to find some way, come hell or high water, to figure out how to make it go. Because when I look ahead, Ben, I, I, what I see is you have to go in a, in a, over, over 20 years. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but over 20 years in Alberta, you've got to go from uh, natural gas and renewables much more towards storage and renewables um, to meet a, if, if, the, the, if the truth is that Canada as a whole is going to go after net zero by 2050, Alberta produces the most greenhouse gases, our oil and gas industry needs us to find the cleanest way to produce electricity so that they can continue to, to sell oil and gas. So we do think uh, Brazo is in the mix there. So um, we continue uh, to work behind the scenes on it. Part of it is, as you know, it's challenging uh, to get people's attention on a project that won't be ready for seven years. 
So we've got some really cool ideas about how we can maybe create some sort of uh, uh, picture between now and seven years with some of our existing assets uh, on our way to Bra on the road to Brazil. So it's not dead, but it's certainly not something that we're talking about with investors or, you know, really uh, putting out in in the, in the front lines because we want to make sure that uh, it is also competitive with other things that people will be thinking about. People will be thinking about how to put hydrogen, for example, into uh, the gas stream at our plants because if we can do that, you, you get some greenhouse gas reductions. We've resurrected the files on CCS. Uh, uh, so, for example, if K1 is our next con combined cycle plant for 2025, maybe we should be thinking about K1 having carbon capture and storage on it so that we can um, sell really clean energy to the oil and gas sector here. Uh, we're also looking at, um, you know, other we've, – we've, we've got a little program where we've looked at almost every kind of battery storage that there is, and there's some really – interesting things going on with different technologies there. So we've basically got a little team that's lined all of that up. We're looking at how Brazo would fit into that, what the timing would be. Um, and then a final thing about Brazo, I think if Canada's going to build uh, infrastructure coming out of this pandemic as a way to get us out of the, the mess that we're in here, uh, something like Brazo is what I call productive infrastructure. It actually creates value and long-term streams of income to investors and long-term employment for people, and it also would create a tax stream for governments. So I think the time is now to get that kind of infrastructure funded. Um, so we've got all of that on our minds, but um, certainly nothing announceable, Ben, but lots of uh, work going on behind the scenes as we think all that through uh, relative to our future. Okay. Maybe that's probably more than you wanted. <laughs> no, that's, that's, no, it's great to think about these things, especially a 10-year sort of development cycle for it. And, and, and maybe maybe to my my last question, third on, on that, when you think about the market seven, 10 years from now, you have a very tight supply-demand conditions at that point in time. Uh, I guess the status quo has always been just building new gas generation at that time to replace the, the coal to gas conversions. Um, but yeah. do, you, do you think it's so you talk about hydrogen and renewables. Do you, do you think maybe that might not be the status quo, that it's going to be more renewables, more storage, more of that, maybe pump, pump hydro in that mix uh, over over gas? Yeah, so the way I, I tend to think about it is, um, you know, if you look at net zero by 2050, that's 25 years from 2025. And when I look at converting K1 to gas, I think you've got to be prepared, and I do think that's a, a fantastic investment. As you know, it's similar to what we're doing on Sun5. And as you know, I've said before, any gas conversion has to be really capital conserving because you've got to get your capital back uh, through the time frame. So if I look at K1, like I say, as a, a potential combined cycle plant, um, the question I've got in my mind is, will it be one of the last combined cycle plants built? And, and will, it require, will, we re, will we build it actually with carbon capture and storage so that it lasts beyond 2050? Now, typically, a gas conversion is about a 25-year. So I think what the team is doing here is we're saying, okay, um, what, are the, what, are the, what are the gas projects that can go to 2050? 
How do you get them past 2050? You have to put CCS in place. And then uh, what starts to replace it? Now, I can say, um, unfortunately have been in this industry far too long, that the cost of things like nuclear, like people are talking about nuclear, and I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, it, is, it is very, very costly. It's $200 a megawatt hour. I do not want to put that on my grandchildren. So when we look at hydrogen, hydrogen is very expensive right now. Um, but 20 years ago, wind was, as you know, it was $200 a megawatt hour. Today it's 40 So 20 years is a long time. So I do think uh, we want to be very, very careful as a company in what those, what those investments look like in gas on our way through the 2020s. And I would predict that the uh, group that's here at the end of the 2020s will be working really, really hard on those storage options. Um, because I think renewables are pretty abundant. Uh, wind is pretty abundant in Alberta. Um, and there are some, some other ways to do hydro here. Like we've got a whole, we pulled out, as you know, the whole uh, file of hydro projects that the company was looking at in the 50s. And they put aside because they thought they would go to, um, to coal. Um, so some of those would come back. Now, new hydro is really hard to, hard to permit as well. So I, I think you're right on the money. Uh, as we go through the decade, gas will start to fade away and other things will start to come into play. But it takes, you know, it takes uh, customers who are willing to partner with us on those kinds of projects because in this market, you can't, you can't build a Brazo in a merchant market uh, using merchant risk. You have to have some partnerships on that. So I think that will be the other thing that will emerge as we go through the, the decade here. All right, that's great. Uh, thank you, Don. Thanks, Ben. Our next question is from Maurice Troy with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Crimson, good morning. Um, I guess just to follow up on that you know, big picture, long-term discussion that you just had, um, th does that mean that, uh, you know, unless we get an answer about all these new technologies having the cost come down significantly, uh, you are quite un unlikely to make a decision on, you know, K1 and possibly even Sun4, um, at least in the near term. Yeah, no, no. I would say again, if you if you if you look, remember we're a 85,000 gigawatt hour market here today, and even if it doesn't grow or it grows at at sort of one percent. Um, the, the current simple uh, conversions that are in the market, uh, they, they, they only have 15 years of life, some of them less because of regulations, right? So even as you're going forward through the 20s, you're going to have to replace some of the supply. And, and so I'm very bullish on K1 and potentially Sun4 as, as, re, as, as repairing options because they're effectively replacing supply as you go later into the decade. And as you rightfully pointed out, when you start to look at around 2026, a number of people are looking at, uh, you know, supply tightness. And, and our job is to make sure that our low-cost resources get into the market so we can keep prices low here uh, for our customers. Because Alberta is not competitive unless power prices are low. And that's, that's just a fact. And you've got to be able to make money in, in, those, in those price ranges. Um, so I think those are still continue to be good candidates. But as we look at the mix going forward, we may add some investment on CCS because if you look at the carbon market, if carbon is going to 50 bucks and beyond, if you look at the clean fuel standard, which has an implied carbon price of $350 in it, 
all of that says that the carbon market itself starts to dictate the way you think of your investments. So we can see ways of making returns on greener and greener assets, not just by selling uh, uh, gigawatt hours, but by selling clean gigawatt hours. So gas can be very, very clean. And uh, in fact, it's very, very plenty, plentiful here in Alberta. And the trick is, how do you either turn that gas into hydrogen or how do you turn that gas into uh, greenhouse greenhouse uh, gas-free gas by, by doing CCS. So those are the kinds of considerations that we're making. Um, and luckily, we've got a great portfolio of assets uh, as sort of our starter kit to attach those investments to for our customers. And I, and I guess just to you know, pick up on, um, I think there was a comment earlier from Todd that usually power prices settle at around $60 uh, per megawatt hour. Does that mean that as you think about all these projects, you you you, you model or you underpin it by, with the sixty dollars, if not a higher than sixty dollar power price? I yeah, you know what, and and, and uh, I think as you think about your portfolio and your mix, for, first of all, um, you know, sixty dollars today um, has pretty pretty low returns in it relative to the, the cost structure that's underneath that because the cost structure that's underneath that has to incorporate a future view on carbon. And, and as you all know, the tier today um, allows gas to really effectively get off the hook, especially combined cycle gas, for paying any carbon bill at all. We do expect, um, as we go forward, that that will go away. I expect over time, anybody who's looking at, at returning capital over 20 years, has to be looking at uh, natural gas having more and more of a carbon uh, price associated with it. So when I think about $60, I often think backwards without a carbon price in it. When you start to put the carbon price in it, it might go up a little bit. It might be 70, 75, whatever. But, but it, doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't mean that the returns are higher, it just means that the cost structure underneath it is higher. My bet is the way technology has worked. I mean, when we, when we bet on wind in 2000, I, most people thought we were absolutely stark raving mad. When we built our wind portfolio, you all know, I had more questions on the street about selling the wind than I ever did about investing in it. Uh, I have more people yelling at me for investing in wind farms than I did supporting us. But net-net, as you look ahead, there's going to be a lot of wind on this planet and a lot of returns are going to be associated with that. So... So I think the job of the industry is to keep prices in that $60, $70 range as long as they can because it turns out no one wants you, – you've got to have low-cost electricity to uh, be competitive, and especially if you le electrify everything that you can. It's even more important. So if the, let's say uh, the um, oil and gas industry here started to go for, let's say, electric boilers. Very, very expensive. But something they may be thinking about as they look at their own ESG goals, we have to come underneath that and provide them with low-cost power. So I absolutely do not subscribe to a world where you charge people a ton of money to provide them electricity because it's green. Our job is to be innovative and get the cost down. Speaking about clean energy, um, can you update us on your thoughts on drop-downs uh, to and sell to renewables? Their preference for gonna, transaction. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm going to let, let John take that one. Yeah, um, Maurice, we we continue to have discussions with uh, between Transalta and Transalta Renewables about uh, 
the potential for drop downs. I think we've been, you know, uh, I think people have a sense of what the, um, the group of assets are that would potentially be, uh, you know, with the, with the right attributes for uh, a drop down. And, um, you know, all I can tell you is that we continue to work uh, and have those discussions as we go forward in the year. Thanks. And, and just a key up um, question about line loss or transmission line loss. Uh, Todd mentioned $20 million um, net liability. Um, is, can you let us know what is the cash flow impact, uh, at least for the upcoming quarters? Um, and is that expected to be adjusted out uh, for the purpose of your guidance? Maurice, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Maurice, I think your question, and we'll have to make this your last one because we've got to move to Andrew, but. Um, I think your question is, what is the cash flow impact of the line loss settlement? Correct, and whether or not that uh, affects your guidance uh, for free cash flow. Yeah. No, no, it doesn't affect our guidance. We've built some of that settlement into our plan, um, so we, we do expect to settle roughly a third of that this year, and then the remaining portion of it uh, at some point in 2021. But that's been built into our forecast. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Maurice. Uh, Andrew. Next question is from Andrew Guskin with Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Thanks. Good morning. Um, I appreciate the commentary and the perspective on your outlook for power pricing and just bidding behavior. I guess the question more directly to Transalt is, you know, bidding behavior is going to change in, in the market as the market transitions, but how do you look at your energy marketing business? And how does that morph and change with the new market reality in Alberta? Um, yeah. So, so, are, so Andrew, are you thinking about that being more? So, I, I think a, a simple way to say that is, our energy marketing business has kind of run us. Always had a little separate book that they've had, and the reality is, as you can, as you see, as we bring on all these assets that are all merchant, it's really their expertise that helps us uh, optimize around that. So, I think um, they'll continue to be the big value adders. Uh, in how we how we how we uh, look at the market here, and um, I think at the end of the day, it doesn't. They don't really need to be taking any real risks themselves in the electricity market here in Alberta because we've got all these assets and we've got to trade around. So they'll do like what they do at at Centralia. They'll trade around the assets and at the same time provide a lot of asset optimization uh, for the for the portfolio. John, do you want to add anything? To yeah, that? no. I, you know, all I would say is, um, I mean, your question is uh, is a timely one in the sense that it's a very active discussion that we're having yeah. internally. Uh, as you can imagine, our whole the way we're thinking of asset optimization uh, is uh, is being reviewed, and 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 we're we're getting prepared for the merchant market in, in 2021. So the balance between what you would do to kind of from a prop trading perspective in Alberta versus what we would be doing just in terms of yeah. uh, the, the, the hedging that we're looking at doing for the, for the larger fleet is a balance that we're continually assessing now as we go forward. But, but, but Andrew, if you're worried about how they'll do as a, as a separate little business going forward, um, they have really diversified away from Alberta. That was my next... Uh, yeah, go ahead, John. So, Andrew, when you look at what the actual floor is doing, I mean, Alberta is probably kind of 15% of uh, the way we think of kind of, you know, if you look at it from a targeted perspective in terms of cash uh, contribution, it is, you know, less than a fifth of the way that we think of the various desks that we have, uh, we have on, on um, in, in the consolidated group. Yeah. 
Okay, that's great. I appreciate they the color. Are. And then maybe, <sighs> maybe my my second question really just revolves around you know, your KBOB opportunity. It's like, that's a very interesting opportunity. It's a very interesting business group. How do you think about just the risk management across you know the Alberta BC border? Because obviously there's different markets and different behaviors on counterparties across the border, as we've seen in the last few months. So how do you think about just the, the size of the opportunity in Alberta and then also in BC? Are you thinking about BC Hydro trying to attract everybody there because of all the power, because of their hydropower? Is is that what you're? Uh, well, Sorry, I, what? I, I, I put the BC Hydro behavior a bit differently as far as what they've done with some contracts they have in the market. But um, mm. when you, when you think about you know, cogen opportunities like you're doing with KBOB, yeah, so yeah. that that's an interesting business mix. You know, clearly those opportunities exist on the other side of the the provincial boundary. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, um, I think typically the cogeneration opportunities emerge always because of the of the high steam and process heat demands. So um, they have. It is interesting though because there's a lot of surplus power coming out of BC, and I think they've been able to market some of that into. Uh, some of the developments that have been going on in, in BC. But net-net, um, as we work with customers, it's any customer anywhere, anywhere in Canada, anywhere across the United States, anywhere in Australia that has a requirement for either behind-the-fence gas, which is what a lot of our Australia guys have, or behind-the-fence uh, steam, uh, those, we, we, we market to all of that. And we've packaged full-service behind-the-fence um, products as well, a combination of renewables with gas, with steam. Yeah, that's, yeah, the hybrid, really, that's the last piece that's really <clears throat> taken off here to Todd's point is exactly that. Yeah, like we're seeing, for example, in Australia, which is completely, we're gobsmacked by it actually, uh, but if you look at the Australian mining industry, they all have ESG goals. They do. So, you know, we're seeing people now talking to us about providing them with some solar power at the same location where they'd have a gas plant. So. So some really interesting things emerging there as well. Okay, that's great. If I could maybe sneak in one last one just on that point. How big do you think that market opportunity is for you? Because you've had the footprint in Australia for years. How much incremental yeah. do you think you can do there? Yeah, I I think it's it's so so the way we kind of look at it always, Andrew, is we, we love singles, as you know. We don't need billion dollar investments. We like to play singles and doubles and occasionally a triple, which um, you know, you'll, you'll see sometimes as well. But um, so when we look at the Australian market, right, what we're seeing right now is singles, like bite size, 100 million, 150 million. And if we can get three singles a year, you know, 450, 500 million a year going on a sustainable basis, that's really what this company needs to, to grow. Um, and we like singles and doubles because they tend to uh, – they, you know, you don't get yourself all hung out on one customer, one deal, and you, you know, there's a lot of issues that go along with that. We like the diversity of the customers and uh, the different fuels. So Australia will give us a couple of those 100 to 150 million dollar investments over the next five years. That should keep it hidden above 300. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, that's what Brendan tells me all the time. If you can just hit it, well, it was each each row. You know, it's Seattle. He just Hit every time, right? Our next question is from John Mould with TD Securities. Your line is open. 
Morning. Um, you know, maybe just going back to a bigger picture Alberta market questions. You know, there's been talk of a federal clean energy stimulus. Certainly nothing concrete comes out at this point. We've seen a number of market-driven renewable projects announced in Alberta. And just, you know, when you're thinking about the Sun 5 repowering, how do you think about the potential for, let's say, out-of-market supports for renewable growth and the impact that could have on the market? And that could be a big benefit for a project like, you know, Brazo as you were pump storage as you were discussing earlier but just wondering how you think about the impact of a potential push to green alberta's electrons on the returns from an investment like sun five and what it can earn in the energy market yeah so can i separate i'll separate for you sun five and sun six right because sun six will be gas by the end of this year so one's a peaker and one's a combined cycle energy project so when I look at a combined cycle energy project and I look at the way the carbon tax works right now and the tier program works, it just gets in there and gets its money, period. So, and it doesn't care, it doesn't care about volatility. If prices are high, it gets that margin. If prices are low, it gets that margin and it runs. So um, when, I, when we stress test and pressure test what the market can look like, that's still an excellent returning project because of the capital is, is lower than what you'd have to do if it was brand new. If you, if you take um, the coal to gas project, it's, it's, this is gonna sound odd to you, but um, it actually does better because effectively you create massive volatility in the market. So think about it this way. Let's say you had another, just magically woke up tomorrow morning and another 1500 megawatts of supply of wind showed up in Alberta. And now you got 3000, let's say you get 3000 megawatts in a 11,000, 12,000 megawatt market. Well, it turns out all that wind is in the same place. Um, it all blows one day and, it, and none of it blows the next day. Market, the prices are going you know, somewhere between zero and 500 bucks and a, and a peaker captures, captures those, market, those margins. So the real issue is whether or not those peakers can get started up pretty quickly. And John and his team have done an amazing job on that. So net net, um, uh, it turns out that in, uh, uh, a renewables market here in Alberta, uh, you have to back it up with something. And in absence of things like Brazo, um, you need fast-acting uh, peakers. The other, uh, of course, big benefit that, that our peakers have is they're able to fully ramp all the way. Uh, they don't have any restrictions. And I think under the federal rules, brand new peakers are restricted to only running 30% of the time. So that's pretty hard to make money on. Um, so I think net-net, what we're looking at is the volatility works for the peakers and the cost structure works for the combined cycle plant over a, a range of options. And, and when you bring in more renewables, you create more volatility. Okay, thanks for that context. And then Todd referenced the MSA statement, I think, earlier on economic withholding. Are you anticipating any additional guidelines related to economic withholding or offer behavior from the MSA or, or with the ASO having completed its market power mitigation rule review earlier this year. Are you expecting a stable bidding framework, more or less, for the foreseeable future? Yeah, we've got Carrie O'Reilly Wilkes here who runs our regulatory, so I'm gonna turn it to her. Sure, um, so we don't anticipate any new guidance, but you know that being said, uh, we, we weren't necessarily anticipating the most recent statements. So I think as we enter into um, the, a pure merchant market, and the balancing pool falls away, I would suspect that we'll find that uh, we'll receive more principles issued by the MSA. 
um, in terms of going forward, but we believe that the market is stable. It's been confirmed that you know, with fair, efficient, open, competitive FIOC regulation, we have what we need uh, for the market to, to run properly and provide stability. So uh, we don't anticipate anything brand new coming out. Yeah, the only, the only color I could potentially add is one of our uh, board members, uh, Yakut Mansour, uh, was the head of the ISO in California. And he did say to me once, he said, look it, your market's been designed for PPAs. The rules are set up relative to the PPAs. As you come out and the PPAs come off and you go to bidding uh, your costs and, and having to get a return and a capacity payment out of the market, uh, there might be some rule changes that are going to be required to make price formation as, as strong and as uh, robust as it can be. Because as Todd said, the whole thing now, the whole market hangs off of really, really strong price formation in that spot market. So um, we don't know yet what that could be, and Carrie and her team will be working sort of side by side with, um, you know, the, with the ISO to see if there are any changes that are required as we go down through that. Uh, but what I find generally is those kinds of rule changes are very technical, very hard to understand. You take the PhD in power economics and math to understand what they're really trying to do. But you could, so I think we could see some of that. But the main um, pieces of the market have really been set. And when they did that, when they issued that guidance, they put the final icing on the cake around how the energy-only market could trade so that effectively it can give the signals for capacity, which I think is really important and very positive for our strategy. Okay, thanks for that. I'll leave it there. Thanks, John. Our next question is from Mark Jarvie with CIBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, just maybe come back to trans renewables. We've seen a you know big premium come in for pure play renewables. So I'm just wondering how that might influence your scene on valuations in the market um, in terms of how you shape future drop-downs at R&W, if that changes your willingness to maybe put gas-fired assets into that entity or keep, keep that split at 50-50 as it is now. Yeah, I mean, we, we, I think it's fair to say, Mark, that we're, we're relatively opportunistic in terms of, um, you know, what would go down from a drop-down perspective. The company's strategy is a balanced one. We do have a focus on developing our renewable business. And we do think we have runway on on-site uh, uh, generation. So as we develop, you know, both of those kinds of assets, we, we think that, they're, that both of them are um, valuable. I know that different multiples are assigned to each of them, but we would be looking at uh, both of those categories as being things that, you know, once we had projects would be uh, a good candidates potentially for R&W. Okay. And then just coming back to the Alberta power market and future supply, there's some speculation of a, Combined cycle plant might get financed and move in the market. Just wondering how that might alter your plans for coal to gas, gas conversions around either going to two repowerings or delaying any of the boiler conversions until you see what that, that entity does with that project. Uh, no. No delay whatsoever. Yeah, no, no change to our approach. Okay, and then last one here is maybe it, it's not even feasible, but Given your expectations of where you prices need to settle next year, some soft demand this year, is there any way to shuffle around planned outages or even just advance either K2 or K3 boiler conversions? Well, um, first of all, we can't talk about that because it has to go to the market overall at sure. the same time. Uh, so, 
So all I would say is my expectation is that as we, and, and this is just my expectation, as you start to come out of the pandemic, as the numbers start to drop, as people actually figure out that all you have to do is wash your hands, stay two meters apart, and wear a mask when you can't, and as the kids come back to school, uh, I think some of the hysteria will go out of all of this, and you'll start to see the, uh, you'll start to see things climb out. And um, we're certainly seeing that week by week here in Alberta. Traffic's getting heavier and heavier every day through the summer, which is quite unusual. Usually the traffic stays, uh, you know, it's pretty good in the summer. Um, so I think demand as y you have to expect that, and we're starting to see uh, the curtailments on production going away on oil. So I think as demand lifts here, um, you know, where, how things are set up next year makes sense. Yeah, uh, the other thing is we gotta we gotta get equipment and people and yeah that's but, that's what I was just about to say Mark like like getting the amount of advanced planning that remember these are outages plus conversions so the amount of planning that goes in um, you know as we're thinking of Sundance, Sundance six for example there's hundreds of people that are going to be on site working on uh, the facility to both do the outage and do the conversion so just logistically it's not something you can you can you know you can toggle uh, um, all that easily so it's a lot of planning and yeah. timelines. I think the other right. thing people are going to people are going to realize that all over this country, in facilities everywhere, people are building stuff and operating stuff, and nobody's getting sick because they're all using very simple protocols. And hopefully, that commentary is going to start to dominate uh, the airwaves uh, here pretty soon. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Appreciate it. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to queue for a question, it is star one on your telephone keypad. Our next question is from Najee Beydoun with Industrial Alliance Securities. Your line is open. Hi. Hi, good morning. Just a quick question for me uh, on the topic of, of repowerings. Can you give us your thoughts on uh, wind repowerings, you know, particularly for some of your older wind assets? Is, is that something you could uh, potentially be pursuing uh, over the near term? Yeah, and Najee, thank you for, first of all, being so patient to wait all the way to this time to ask that question, and it's a great question. So as we look at wind repowerings, uh, we've got some of the earliest wind sites, which are, have got really great uh, uh, resource, resources for wind. Um, typically, uh, a lot of people will tend to put, we're pretty, we're pretty conservative about what we put in as our terminal values of wind farms, uh, because we, we kind of look at two things. One, can you extend the contract with the landowner? And, and two, can you reuse some of the equipment? You know what we've mostly found is you can absolutely extend the uh, contract with the landowner. They are desperate to keep those wind farms there because usually that's what's keeping them alive. But but the technology's changed so much. Um, so if you look at our first wind farm, it was probably 300 kilowatts, right? And then it went to 660. And now we're looking at wind farms that are 5 megawatts. Well, the platform for 5 megawatts is quite a bit bigger and quite a bit deeper than the platform for 660. So uh, typically, a repowering option is a renewal and a brand new wind farm at that site using that resource, and you have to do a lot of work on your on your substation and all the rest of it. So that's how we look at it. Um, so it typically, uh, the number one thing is, have you been a good neighbor? Have you kept the noise low? Have, if, a, if a door opens on at the top of a windmill, did you go up and shut it as fast as you could so you didn't keep the landowner awake all night? Um, have you got excellent environmental records and, and uh, are you doing the things you should be doing for birds, bats, and bees? 
And if you get all of that going, um, you'll get a long-term extension on the wind resource, but likely your repowering is, is, uh, is a replacement. But on top of just the repowering, we also have you know, a good inventory of other optional yeah. land yeah. to build out new wind farms, and that's sort of how the Windrise facility came out, as opposed to repowering one of our retired sites, is to, to actually go to a new site. And again, that's just Alberta. Down in the U.S., John, I think we have a 1,000. We have quite a few um, early stage development uh, sites um, that we can develop up as well. And those would be all new, yeah. uh, those are all new sites. And, and that is back along with the strategy of saying, um, you know, we need to have some early stage development sites or late stage development sites to be able to bring forward to customers to get their attention to, to, uh, in, to, to get them in a position where we can actually execute a contract in PPA. Okay, that's, that's pretty detailed. Thank you. And, and just, uh, I guess, do you have a target kind of similar to the cogen strategy of a certain amount of capital that you want to be investing in, in these types of opportunities? And, uh, and you know, if you do uh, proceed with some repowerings, are the returns that you're targeting there similar to new build? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and again, if you kind of sit back and say, okay, can, can you find enough things to do in the jurisdictions we're in, in the technologies that we love, uh, to, to get you on a path where you're investing in that, you know, 450, 500 million a year on a consistent basis, um, the wind kind of fits in that. But net net, if wind is a lower return than cogen, co we're going to do more cogen than wind, and vice versa. So it really comes down to um, can we get the right prices for the investments that we make? Okay, thank you uh, for the great detail. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Our next question is from Chris Varco with Calgary Herald. Your line is open. Hi, Don. I'm sorry if this question's been asked. I just jumped on the call, but I, I was curious about the wind charger battery storage project. Can you talk about how the construction has gone, how the costs have gone on this project, and whether they've met your expectations? And maybe more importantly, what are you going to be watching for as the keys for success in this project? Um, it's pretty cool, Chris. Like, uh, I, I wish I, I should, I'm going to give it to John because it's his team that's done it, but go ahead, John. Oh, yeah. yeah it's hey, really Chris, cool. it, uh, it is really cool. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we get pictures of it from time to time from our crew, uh, down there and we're excited to have it. It is, it is essentially all in place. We're just doing some, um, some testing on the, uh, on the transformers. The costs were pretty much right on top of where we thought. Uh, the timing was pretty much on top of uh, where we thought, notwithstanding, you know, the thickening of the border and COVID. Uh, yeah, but talk about when you started the construction and when you're going to end. Well, we're going to end it in a couple. Of, I mean, we're, it's basically there. We're more in a in a testing phase, but it was put together in just a matter of months, to be yeah. honest, uh, uh, in terms of uh, construction. And uh, it was great when we saw the batteries coming up from Tesla uh, and uh, in place. So, um, and I think Don, you and I were, were, were right by there just a couple of months ago, yeah. and it was, there wasn't a lot there, and in literally two months, it's basically done. Um, we are excited about it. it it's, um, it's an opportunity for us to kind of match storage and our renewables wind power generation. It's tied to a wind farm that we have there, so we're really looking at um, learning uh, from, from, from tying the two together and, uh, um, you know, just seeing how it'll operate uh, uh, to fill in kind of peaks of demand in, in the marketplace and sort of uh, time shift effectively uh, the generation that we have from the renewables to times when it would be potentially more valued. So it's a yeah, great project. The marker for it, Chris, is, is uh, so very simple, very fast to put up. Really quick. Uh, 
you know, very easy to, to permit. I mean, we were standing in a field looking at a field one day, and the next day we got the pictures and the, the batteries had been brought up by yeah. truck and were sitting on the where they were supposed to be. It's about half the size of a soccer field, if so you, you kind of give you a sense. If you're in our industry where it takes, you know, forever to get anything done, it was kind of remarkable. But the real challenge will be, will it make any money? Um, because you can you store for about two hours, yeah. and then you've got you've to um, undo it you know, when the prices are higher. So you're, sh you're, sh you're time shifting the value of energy. And, um, and it's got to, at the end of the day, it's got to pay for itself. So yeah. we'll be able to, we won't know for about a year or so whether or not it creates that value in the market here. But uh, certainly it's, it's been a pretty interesting project to be involved in. Just to follow up, can I ask you, what do you see as the potential for battery storage given the current technology, and what do you see as the limitations at this stage that, that really need to be overcome? Yeah, so in our industry, the limitations are always the, the capital, the size of the capital that you need to make the initial investment relative to the, you know, whatever the price differential is you're going after. So the way batteries work, Chris, is you need a, a fairly good differential between uh, periods. So you need a low price period when you're charging. so that you can charge and then you, you, um, you take the power out of the battery when there's a higher price. Um, Alberta is a little bit tougher than most jurisdictions because we have such a high system load factor. We need power 24-7. You don't get as much day and night uh, change as you do maybe in other markets, but as more renewables come in, maybe that will change. So th that's something that you would watch for. Um, the biggest constraint right now is the time duration. So these, the Tesla batteries are short-duration batteries, two hours. We're looking at batteries, uh, our, our, Brazo wind, our Brazo storage project, which is pump storage. It has about nine hours of, of discharge, but it takes 12 hours to store, right? So it takes 12 hours to charge the reservoir, and then you can run it out for nine. That's pretty good. Uh, we're looking at some battery technologies that are kind of half and half. Uh, you you store for about 13 hours and you you it comes out for 10 or 11. Uh, don't ask me why it doesn't all add up to 24 hours. The <coughs> engineer has to explain that to me. But um, so so net net the biggest constraint today is everybody's going after these long storage batteries, and they've got all these different technologies. Uh, a lot of them are chemical chemical batteries where you're adding ions to a chemical and then you're taking the ions out as you're discharging. So. If you're interested in it, come over and we'll take you through a tutorial and you can write lots of stuff about it. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, this does conclude our Q&A period. I'll now turn it back over to Karen Valentini for any closing remarks. Great. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you, everyone. That concludes our call for today. If you have any further questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to the IR team here at TransAlta. Have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation, and you may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.